0: Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then shall the offspring of Israel cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth below can be explored... Then I will cast off all the offspring of Israel for all that they have done, declares the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the city shall be rebuilt for the Lord from the tower of Hananel to the corner gate. And the measuring line shall go out farther, straight to the hill Garib, and then shall turn to Goa. The whole valley of the dead bodies and the ashes and all the fields as far as the brook Kidron to the corner of the horse gate toward the east shall be sacred to the Lord. It shall not be plucked up or overthrown anymore forever. We read this far in God's holy word. In our passage today, God took what we know, what is near us and is visible to us, and used our knowledge of these items in order to project an idea of bigger things. Namely, God started out with truth that we all understand from observation about the sun, moon, and stars, and even the seas, the oceans, which we all know about, in order to present to us truth about bigger things that we need to know about. Namely, is God faithful in the movements of the sun, moon, and stars, even though sin came into the world since he created them? If the answer is yes, then does God provide a solution to the sin problem of man under that sun and that moon and stars? And if so, what are those blessings that God has provided for sinners? Last time we studied that classic passage about a covenant and the new covenant, verses 31 through 34, there's one aspect now of that covenant already mentioned there, but more filled out in our passage today, that one aspect is the everlasting nature of the new covenant. Thus the title, Endless Blessings, and thus the main point, which is this. Since the covenant is everlasting, the same God who sent his people into exile restores them and gives them endless blessings. So first we'll see from verses 35-35. 36 and 37, that the same God who holds the sun, moon, and stars in place is committed to restoring us, his people. Second point, we'll see from verses 38 to 40, that everlasting quality of God's restored city is the first sign of God fulfilling the new covenant promise. And thirdly, borrowing from a verse we studied last time, verse 31, that Jesus kept the covenant for us, so that our blessings never end. So we're going back to our first point now. The same God who holds the sun, moon, and stars in place is committed to restoring us, a lesson in the passage that clearly applies to us through Christ. God describes first here his, his own self. Who is God? God should be able to present himself in scriptures, which he does. He reveals himself in terms of his work, his work originally at the creation, and his work to uphold the creation ever since. That's what's on display. That's the background of the lessons here. So you remember, on the fourth day of creation, God made the sun, moon, and the stars to rule over the day and rule over the night. And here, in verses 35 to 37, the verbs are not exactly the same verbs that we find when that is told to us in Genesis 1. And there's not an explicit mention of the creation itself in our passage. However it's clear that God is over the moon and the stars and the sun, and there is explicit mention of those bodies and how God assigned to each of them a specific task of illuminating either the daytime, which is the job for the sun to do, of course, or the nighttime, which is the job for the moon and the stars to do. So the prophet Jeremiah is taking basic lessons from the first chapter of the Bible, not quoting, not specifically repeating the same verbs, but the concepts which are there, and are repeated by people's knowledge of the general revelation that everybody understands, and he's applying that common knowledge to the point at hand. Because the point at hand is it's now the time for the restoration from the exile, and what can we understand to be the case for this? And since God gave assignments for the sun, moon, and stars to do, and those assignments were being completed down to the very day here that Jeremiah is prophesying, then the God given assignments for God's people to do under His covenant obligations to God would need to complete their assignments too, wouldn't they? The sun obeys, the moon and stars obey, but His people will not. What if the people object to their assignment and do not like their obligations and start to move beyond the boundaries where God has placed for them to operate? Could that ever happen with the sun or the moon or the stars? Of course not. And yet these people, who are the people of God, also created by God, are stepping outside of their proper place. And God has an answer. As Jeremiah shows us in the next phrase in verse 35, not only did God keep within the boundaries of daytime, the sun, beginning at sunrise, ending at sunset, always obeying, not only did God keep within the boundaries of Nighttime, the moon and the stars, giving light that's not powerful enough for the daytime, although if you'd like to object, if you're the argumentative type, you're thinking about how you can see the moon sometimes during the daytime. But it's not the prominent light source, so it's not outstepping its bounds. It only provides light by night, is true, that God keeps also not just the sun, moon, and stars, but here broadens it and mentions the sea. The sea also has boundaries in which it stays. The sea does not come onto the land in any permanent way. I know you're thinking of flooding. All those argumentative folks there, which is just great because you need to challenge the scriptures and understand it. The seas pound the shores every day and every night. All around the world have been doing so since they were created and put in their place. But you have to agree that on the whole... They have been kept in their place. There's a reference here to the created order established on the third day of creation when God said this, Genesis 1-9, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. Not only were the oceans receded from the land initially, but the oceans have been kept back from the land ever since. God even gave them their basic names. Genesis 1-10, God called the dry land earth, The waters that were gathered together, he called seas, and God saw that it was good. And you might think that's really not very profound, earth and seas, but to name something is to show authority over it. I can't name your car, you can't name my car, but you could name your car, and I could name my car because we each have authority over it. God has authority of all the land and all the seas, so he gives them their names. And the unfolding history of the world, those who are again have a penchant for arguing a bit with me on this, I'll put your case out for you. Are there exceptions to the ocean staying within their boundaries? You know, maybe one big exception? Yes, there was the judgment of God against the sin of the people known as the worldwide flood. How about that? Yes, that was when God responded to the sin of the people. Genesis 6.12, God saw that the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. Genesis 6.12, God told Noah to make a giant wooden boat, call it an ark. Why? God answered in Genesis 6.17, For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on earth shall die. But... I will establish my covenant with you and you shall come into the ark you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you Genesis 6:17 What does all this have to do with the exile? Has the preacher completely lost topic today? It's an understanding of the depth of God's commitment to restore us which is deeper than man's sin. It was the case in the flood. It was the case in the exile. After the flood, because of man's sin, listen to what God said to Noah after Noah survived the flood. God said to Noah in Genesis 8.22, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. Genesis 8.22. Did you catch it? Day and night shall not cease. We've been talking about that in our passage today. And furthermore, in Genesis 9, God made a covenant with Noah in which God promised, Genesis 9:11, "I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth." Genesis 9:11. Of course, that's the sign of the covenant, as you know, of the rainbow, which still happens after rain to demonstrate scientifically and covenantally to us that God upholds His promises. He will never again flood the earth in that way. How long will that covenant last? Genesis 9.16, the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth, Genesis 9.16. In other words, since this is the everlasting promise that God made to all creatures and all people on the earth, then what additional confidence can we gain as the children of God, his covenant people? The promise of him restoring us after we sin, just like he gives the rainbow after the rain. The promise of him restoring us after we sin. Isn't that why we've gathered this morning? Isn't that why we worship this God? He's our creator and our redeemer, the one who restores us and promises to do so. So in our study passage today, we see the prophet Jeremiah making this very point. Verse 35 tells us who this God is. And verse 36 tells us what this God says, and therefore what he promises to us. See the quotation marks around verse 36. After he introduces in sort of a long way in verse 35 of who this God is, the characteristics about the one who's speaking, then in verse 36 tells us his promise. Jeremiah is purposefully connecting for us God's promises to bless us with God's promises to uphold the very earth itself. On which we live our lives and underneath the heavens above us, under which we live our lives. My father in law, Eileen's dad, will always be heard saying to his wife if if she asks him to go get a diet coke from the fridge. He's six foot three or six foot four, and he likes to lay on the floor to watch television. So it's quite an effort for him to get up off the floor, walk into the kitchen, get a Diet Coke and bring it to her. She could have done it herself. So he says to her, honey, for you, the world. And he gets himself up and he goes to the kitchen and he gets the Diet Coke and he brings it back to her with a smile on her face and a great attitude. It's a wonderful thing to observe. And that, I think, is what we're, we're seeing here. That if you're willing to hold the whole world up for your people... What else would you not do? Of course, there's something missing. We'll talk about that when we get to the cross. But it's the God who is the God of creation, who's also the God of redemption. God will not reject his people as long as the heavens remain in their cycles of day and night, verse 35. As long as the sea waves roar against the shore but do not exceed the shore, verse 35. As long as the fixed order of creation continues, verse 36. And furthermore, as long as the skies and space remain unmeasured, verse 37, and as long as the world, even to the center of the earth, remains unexplored and not searched out to every kilometer, meter, and millimeter, the point is that everything in creation says to us, our God is faithful, and the moment of his unfaithfulness will never come. The sun will never fail to come up in the morning. That's what Annie sings about. The sun will come up tomorrow. How does she know that? Because she's observed it. And you've observed it. We all know it. The moon and the stars will never fail to shine at night. The cycle of day and night will not cease. The ocean waves will never cover the continents of the world again. The universe of space will never be fully measured and charted by men and women, no matter how many more rocket ships we build and send out there. The depths of the earth's core will never be fully explored and understood by human scientists, engineers, and explorers, no matter how many more explorations we manage to send or movies we create about it. Who says? God says. Jeremiah says that because that's true, we can learn something in addition. The same God who says that is fully aware of the exile person's rebellion and wrongdoing, and waywardness. And yet God made a promise that was as big as any part of the universe that anyone has ever seen. What does the Lord refer to at the end of verse 37, where we read, for all that they have done? It's clearly a reference to all of their sin, which Jeremiah has been presenting to us for the first 30 chapters of our book of Jeremiah. And yet, despite all of the wrong. The cataloged and specifically listed out wrong, the case that God could make for destroying them, the breakage that they had of the original covenant, the despicable rebellion that's clear, God remains committed to restoring his people. This is a God of grace. This is a God of love. This is the good news. It's why we've gathered to worship. It is the gospel in the Old Testament prophecy here yet to be fulfilled, as we'll talk about in a moment. Every scientist discovery, every space adventure exploration, every new place on the earth or under the sea or digging in the earth's crust ought to provide comfort and further consolation for every Christian again that our God, in yet another way, will never, ever, ever deny or forsake us. He forsook Jesus unto death on the cross under the darkened daytime sky in order to demonstrate how he will never forsake us. The God of creation is the God of the flood and the God of the ark, the God of drying up the flood waters, the God of promising anew to Noah, and the God of the rainbow, the faithful God, the God of Jeremiah, and the God of the exiles. The God of the wayward and rebellious Israel and Judah is having an awesome message presented to them by their faithful prophet Jeremiah through their faithful God. The God of creation is the God of the Exodus. The God of redemption. The God of restoration is the same God. The God of creation is the God of Abraham to whom God said in Genesis fifteen five to count the what? To count the stars. If you're able. And then he says... A redemption application. Creation, count them if you're able. The redemption application from the creation, so shall your offspring be. That's us. We are today gathered this morning part of the fulfillment of the God of Abraham to Abraham and his promise. And Paul the apostle affirmed that understanding in Galatians 3.29. If you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs, according to. Promise Galatians 3:29. The same God who holds up the sun and moon and stars in place is committed to restoring us. That's our first point. We move on to verses 38 to 40. The everlasting quality of God's restored city is the first sign of God fulfilling the new covenant promise. Here, Jeremiah's theme need we be reminded is permanence. His theme is permanence. We already had the no longer of verse 34 speaking of the knowledge of God that will so pervade the future community that they will no longer need to teach one another. They will all know the Lord. There's also the no more of verse 34, speaking of the totality of God's forgiveness, that God will remember their sin no more. And then to add to that, those hints we already had, we have it further explained here in verses 38 to 40, where Jeremiah concludes the chapter in verse 40 with a promise that the restored city will, quote, not be overthrown anymore forever. So verses 38 to 40 underscore the same point we've been making about the long-lasting nature of God's promises. The promises of God to restore, to bless, are less poetic in verses 38 to 40 But the promises of God here are still grand and symbolic in our last three verses. Again, a formula is used in verse 38 that kicks it off, beginning, Behold, the days are coming. We've covered that. We've seen that throughout our chapter. Referring to a future time unspecified. And then the content of the pronouncement from the Lord God concerns the rebuilding and expansion of the particular city. The city of Jerusalem, as we know. The city that had been destroyed in the attacks and the deportations, making prisoners of war out of God's people, who were taken away from Jerusalem to Babylon. But then the real carnage began in Jerusalem. But the future age that God envisions is Jerusalem's restoration and more, not just restoring to the way it was, but so much more beyond that. There are specific landmarks here mentioned that we could just briefly cover. Verse 38, the Tower of Hananel, the Corner Gate. Verse 39, the Hill Gerab and Goa. Verse 40, the Brook of Kidron and the Horse Gate. Not all these landmarks are given elsewhere in the Bible or known exactly by us today, but some are. I don't have time to uncover the ones that and you could research it. What is clear, and the obvious, I don't want to lose the main point, what is clear is that the order of the listing mimics a map of the city from above it as if it were split into four quadrants, like you might look at a map or your screen for your Google map. You would begin at the top right section, which is the northeast quadrant. You would proceed left or counterclockwise until you end up full circle where you began. That's how this passage describes it, verses 38 to 40. So the significance of these verses is that Jerusalem will be rebuilt even expanded and it will be considered holy. Not just the temple and the temple precincts, but the entire city will be considered holy. Look at the middle of verse 40, which reads like a concluding statement of a tour guide to us, the tour group, as if to say, just as we've seen through the entire tour, now to conclude, from this second to the last, to the last Landmark, right here, as if he's standing right in front of it, all of it shall be sacred to the Lord. Verse 40, do you see it? It's not just an afterthought, it's the whole point of the whole tour from the beginning. Look back to verse 38 where we read, This city shall be rebuilt for the Lord. So from the beginning, verse 38 to the end here in verse 40, from the beginning of the tour of the city to the end of the tour of the city, full circle throughout the landmarks, the city is to be rebuilt and everything is to be for the Lord and to the Lord. Okay, but what has been the main point of our passage today, the main point of the sermon? The duration of it. It's all great and good to have something wonderful, but what if it ends? How long will the city be for the Lord and to the Lord? We've seen that very city destroyed kind of recently. So how encouraged can we be as exiles, you see? How long will these promises of God we're reading about here in verses 38 to 40 be kept? How long will the rebuilt Jerusalem last? I believe that's a valid question and probably on the minds of God's people. Because God's the one who allowed Jerusalem to be destroyed. But that was for the sin of the people. Because the people broke the original covenant with God. But now God has announced a new covenant in which God will be the party on the one side of the covenant. And God will be the party on the other side of the covenant. God the Father and God the Son upholding the covenant for God's people. Now, God will uphold the covenant from both sides. So now, what is the capacity for the promises to last? Now, what is the forecast for the city to last? How long will the second Jerusalem last? What can we expect for the city? Shall it ever be destroyed again? Or have God's blessing removed from it? Look again at the very last words of our passage, the very last sentence of verse 40 in which God promises about God's city something in which he simultaneously teaches us about himself and about his new covenant. Here God says that this city shall not be plucked up or overthrown any more forever. Of course, you recognize the two verbs, plucked up and overthrown, from all the way back in chapter 1, verse 10 of Jeremiah, when God said to Jeremiah that God would pluck up, break down, destroy, overthrow, but then build and plant. And God planned all this before he started. How long will the city last this time? It will never be destroyed. Again, those of you who are history buffs and like to argue with me, you're thinking AD 70, aren't you? And of course, that is then fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ and the Messiah so that Jerusalem and its temple become unnecessary. Jesus is the temple and where he is, God's people are, and where we are is Zion, the new Jerusalem, and he builds for us an eternal new Jerusalem in heaven, so it is fulfilled. For how long? Forever. Remember that last word of our passage. We've already started to look at the third point. Jesus kept the covenant for us so that our blessings will never end. Consider Jeremiah 31, 31 as being explained in one example here in our passage. Jeremiah 31, 31 begins, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. The everlasting quality of that covenant is indicated in the everlasting quality of the restored city. It's the first sign of God fulfilling that new covenant promise. The first sign is when God in history actually did bring his people back from Babylon to Jerusalem and rebuilt and expanded the city and the temple. But that fulfillment was just the beginning of the blessings with God, of God with Moria to come. Jerusalem is the first sign of bigger things, the concepts of who this creation and redemption God is. Jerusalem was destroyed for sin, rebuilt for the Lord, sacred to the Lord, permanent. Does that remind you of anything? Of course, it points us to Christ. Destroyed for sin, rebuilt for the Lord at the resurrection, sacred to the Lord, permanent. As king and head of God's people, building a city in which God's people will dwell, the new Jerusalem of heaven itself. Of course, it points to the church, the people of God who are in Christ by faith, destroyed for sin in Christ's death, rebuilt for the Lord when Jesus was raised, set apart for the Lord as his holy people. How long? Beginning now, continuing forever. Today, God is keeping his perpetual promises and commitments to us because of Christ. These words were fulfilled and continue to be fulfilled. He's the forever God. Yet there's another fulfillment yet to come. God will take us from exile in this world to our ultimate future home in the city of God, the new Jerusalem. Revelation 21.10, the apostle John has shown a vision which John attempts to describe to us with these words. When John wrote that the angel carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem. John continues in the next chapter, chapter 22 of Revelation. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city. Continuing later, he writes, His servants will worship him, they will see his face, his name will be on their foreheads, and they will reign. How long? Forever and ever. How long will we have the blessing of being in heaven? Forever and ever. Endless blessings through Christ that Jesus kept the covenant for us so that our blessings never end. So I have three concluding applications to us as people of God, as a church of God from our, our study today. Number one, whenever you get discouraged, reflect again on the permanence of God's blessings to us. Whenever you get discouraged, reflect again on the permanence of God's blessings to us. If you're anything like me, and the Bible tells me that you're just like me, you get discouraged when we look at our culture and see the breakdown of so many basic, fundamental, essential things. I get discouraged. People don't know what gender is. People don't know what marriage is. People don't know what the church is. People don't know what a family is. We are very confused as a culture. It gets me discouraged. I'm being honest and open with you. But I think you're right there with me. And the truth that we learn from our passage today is when we're discouraged, we're looking at things backwards. The blessings are endless. The problems are temporary. I forget that in the moments of discouragement. It feels like the problems are forever. No, the problems... Are temporary. The universe would grind to a halt before God would fail us as His people, individually and together as a church. That's the beauty of this passage. Think how Paul picks it up in Second Corinthians four fourteen. He who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into His presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. 2 Corinthians 4, 14 to 18. Whenever you get discouraged, reflect again on the permanence of God's blessings to us. Number two, whenever you take part in God's creation, remember God's love is more reliable. Whenever you take part in God's creation, from a sunrise to a sunset to a walk on the beach, remember God's love for us is even more reliable. And here I have a quick story. A pastor from a generation ago Pastor W.B. Hinson, who died in 1926, almost exactly 100 years ago, age 65, spoke from his own experience just before he died. He said this, quote, I remember a year ago when a doctor told me, you have an illness from which you won't recover. I walked out to where I live, five miles from Portland, Oregon. I looked across that mountain that I love. I looked at the river in which I rejoice, and I looked at the stately trees that are always God's own poetry to my soul. Then in the evening... I looked up into the great sky where God was lighting his lamps, and I said, I may not see you more and more times, mountain, but I shall be alive when you're gone, and river, but I shall be alive when you cease running toward the sea and stars, but I shall be alive when you've fallen from your sockets in the great down-pulling of the material universe. This pastor, uh, end quote, a hundred years ago, had learned the lesson of our passage today, which is similar to what the apostle wrote. Apostle Paul wrote two thousand years ago, Romans eight thirty-eight. I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans eight, thirty eight thirty-nine. So the second point is simply when you take part in God's creation, remember his love is even more reliable. And third, our last application whenever you mess up, remember the Bible tells me you're just like me, so I know you mess up. And when you're dealing with that, and that's why we're here together, whenever you mess up, remember our God loves to restore his people. You think of the exile and the restoration. Give me an example of an exile restoration story. Maybe throughout this sermon at some point you thought of Jesus telling the story of the prodigal son in Luke 15. The runaway son, prodigal son, and how the father rejoiced to welcome him home. This is the same lesson of our passage. Our God rejoices to restore us after we mess up. The same gospel we offer to sinners in all the countries go and send missionaries is the same gospel we offer to sinners who have been a long-time member of a church mess up. Our God still offers us endless blessings because of Christ, the covenant keeper, the only covenant keeper. We're invited to return to our God. We're invited to worship him with awe. We're invited to understand the created order through this lens. And in our worship service, as we could read Hebrews 12, 24, that we have come to Christ, the mediator of a new covenant. With him there's forgiveness. As we remember from Jeremiah 31, 34, where God himself said, I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. When you mess up, remember our God loves to restore his people and that is an everlasting blessing. Let's pray. Father in heaven, give us a deep